I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and open your Bible to the book of Genesis. We're going to be in chapter 18 and chapter 19 together this morning as we look at a sinful city, a compromised heart, and a backward look. If you are not artistically gifted, uh, but you want to draw a picture, <clears throat> you can trace over someone else's picture. And that's how I do art. Uh, you can use that other person's picture as a pattern or an example so that your picture looks like their picture. Sometimes in Scripture, um, we have for us examples of faith, and they're, they're given to us to, to trace our life over their life, to, to where we can model our life after their life so that we look like them, that we, we, we follow their example, we imitate their faith. But sometimes... The examples that are given to us in Scripture are given to us not for us to imitate, but they're, they're given to us as warning signs. Don't be like this. Paul talks about it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 6. He says, speaking of some of the Old Testament stories, he says, these things took place as examples for us so that we will not desire evil things as they did. The next two stories that we're going to look at in Genesis 18 and 19 are given to us to be warning signs. Don't be like this. The focus is shifting. We've, we've been talking about Abraham and his family over the last several chapters, but the focus now is going to shift back to the family of Lot. Lot was Abraham's nephew. He had moved into the city of Sodom, and the focus of these chapters now directs our attention away from Abraham, uh, uh, back towards Lot, and to the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. We are reminded of how sinful these cities are, and we're going to see in chapter 19 that the, the sinfulness of these cities is so great that God is actually going to judge them. You'll remember back in chapter 13 and verse 13, we have a description of Sodom and Gomorrah. <clears throat> chapter 13, verse 13 says, now the men of Sodom were evil, sinning immensely, against the Lord. The author is just stacking up word upon word for us to see how sinful these cities are. Immense sin. Sin against the Lord. Their sin was great. And in chapter 19, we're going to see how sinful these cities had become. This is one of the most startling and sobering stories in the Bible. I think Genesis chapter 19 is maybe the darkest chapter in Scripture. It teaches us that sin has real consequences. It shows us what happens when a people act with utter disregard for the Lord and with great evil toward one another. We know Scripture tells us that God is patient with sinners. But at a certain point, He will judge sin. That is a reality. So this text shows us where sin inevitably leads. It leads to judgment. It leads to destruction. People will say, well, that's not very loving to talk about judgment and destruction. It's unloving to not say what is true. The most loving thing we can do is to say what is true. And if God gives us a chance to be rescued from that judgment, we need to say that as well. And the, the text says both of those things. So the story begins actually with a prelude in chapter 18. We're actually going to dip back, look at chapter 18, then come into chapter 19. What's going to happen in chapter 18 is that God is, going to, God is going to judge Sodom and Gomorrah, but in chapter 18, he comes to, to Abraham and shares his plans for judgment. 
And Abraham responds to what God says by pleading with God not to sweep away the righteous with the wicked. So first thing you notice in this story, chapter 18, verses 16 through following, if you are taking notes, you can just write the word over this section, intercession. Because this is Abraham's, Abraham's intercession on behalf of the, the righteous who live in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Let's dive right in. Verse 16, it says, the men got up from there. Which men are we talking about? Well, chapter 18 begins with three men coming to visit Abraham and Sarah. These are angelic visitors, divine visitors. It's a theophany. That means it's a visible manifestation of God who is invisible. They appear to Abraham and Sarah and they bring good news. But now those men turn their attention to Sodom and Gomorrah and they're going to deliver bad news. The men got up from there, they looked out over Sodom and Abraham was walking with them to see them off. And then the Lord said, should I hide from what I'm about to do from Abraham? Abraham is to become a great and powerful nation and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him for I've chosen him so that he will command his children and his house after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. Those two words are key words in this chapter, doing what is righteous and what is just. And this is how the Lord will fulfill to Abraham what he promised him. Then the Lord said, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is immense. You remember chapter 13 says that their sin is immense. Here he says the outcry against these cities is immense and their sin is extremely serious. Now all sin is serious. So when the Bible points something out specifically and says it's extremely serious, we ought to pay attention. So verse 21, God says, I will go down to see if what they have done justifies the outcry that has come up to me. And if not, I will find out. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom while Abraham remained standing before the Lord. And Abraham stepped forward and said, will you really sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away instead of sparing the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people who are in it? You could not possibly do such a thing to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. You could not possibly do that. Won't the judge of the whole earth do what is just? There's that word again. What is right? What is righteous? And the Lord said, if I, find, if I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. So there's a sense of a preserving influence that righteousness brings in a society. Then Abraham answered, verse 27, since I've ventured to speak to my Lord, even though I am dust and ashes. Suppose the 50 righteous lack five. Will you destroy the whole city for a lack of five? And he replied, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Then he spoke to him again. Suppose 40 are found there. And he answered, I will not do it on account of 40. Then he said, let my Lord not be angry and I will speak further. He knows he's kind of trying the patience here. He says, let me, don't get angry with me. Let me ask one more thing. Suppose 30 are found there. And he answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. Then he said, since I've ventured to speak to my Lord, suppose 20 are found there. And he replied, I will not destroy it on account of 20. Anybody getting tired of this? <laughs> then he said, let not my Lord be angry and I will speak one more time. Suppose 10 are found there. And he answered, I will not destroy it on account of 10. And when the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he departed and Abraham returned to his place. Okay, that's a weird little section of scripture. 
Some people say that this passage of scripture is put in the book of Genesis to teach us something about prayer. And while it's true that we can say truthful things about prayer from this text, I actually don't think that's why it's here. I think this is given to us as a prelude to the destruction that's going to happen in chapter 19. This is to show us a couple of things that we need to know about God before we turn the page and go into chapter 19. What is it teaching us about God? Well, I think it's teaching us two things. Number one, that God is patient toward us. I think what you see in the character of God here, in this back and forth between God and Abraham, which we get impatient even just reading this, right? It's laborious, it's tedious to read 50, 45, 40. It's like, come on, why didn't you just start with 10? We get impatient with it, but I think the point is to show us how long-suffering God is, that he is not eager to judge. He is going to judge sin in chapter 19, but this is to show us he's not eager to judge, he's eager to show mercy. When Abraham says, how about 50? He says, yes, I'll spare it for 50. How about 45? Yes, I'll spare it for 45. All the way down to 10, it's to show us how willing God is to spare these cities. How willing God is to pour out grace and mercy, that God is patient. Sometimes people can think of God as a God who's eager to just wipe us off the map, or God's some kind of some angry judge in the sky, that he's, he's mean. And this text shows us, no, God is patient. God is merciful. God is willing and eager to show grace. This is exactly what 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse, uh, verse 9 says, that uh, if you look here on the screen, it says, the Lord does not de- delay his promise, as some understand delay. Let's say this together, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to what? Repentance, right? God is patient. He is eager to show mercy. He would have been willing to spare the city if there were 50 or 45 or 40 or 30 or 20 or even 10 righteous. If you've ever been to the Middle East, this whole bartering thing, you, you know this is what happens in Middle Eastern markets. This is Abraham sort of bartering with God here, getting him down to the right number. But, but notice that God never once says no to Abraham's request. There's never a point at which Abraham says, show mercy on behalf of this number, and God says, nope, I won't do that. God's answer to a plea for mercy is always yes. The point of this tedious funneling down from 50 to 10 is to show us, the reader, that there aren't even 10 righteous people in the city. In other words, the city is entirely evil. Verse 20 says the outcry of the city is immense. Their sin is extremely serious. So I think that teaches us a second thing about God. Not only is he patient towards us, but God is just in his judgment. God is not eager to judge. He is eager to save. He is patient with sinners. He is willing to say yes to mercy. But when God judges, he is always righteous in doing so. It's interesting that Abraham never says that God shouldn't judge. He hears that God is going to judge these cities. He never says, God, don't do that. Abraham's concern is not questioning God's justice in judging the wicked. His concern is rather whether God is going to sweep away the righteous with the wicked. He says that in verse 23. Uh, Are you really going to sweep away the righteous with the wicked? That would be unjust. And so that's Abraham's concern. God, don't judge unjustly. Don't sweep away the righteous as you're judging the wicked. It's interesting in verse 23. Uh, three, it says that Abraham steps forward to say that. Now, just picture in your mind, Abraham is in the presence of God, 
And then he takes a step forward towards God to begin to barter with him and and plead mercy. I think that's a picture there of how Abraham points us forward to Jesus. The, The phrase stepped forward is used in the ancient world as someone who would deliver a legal plea on behalf of a defendant. Abraham is pictured here with the cities behind him as standing in front of them, coming to plead their case, begging for God's mercy for the righteous in the city, saying, God, don't don't sweep away your people in this act of judgment. He's arguing as an advocate or a mediator the case of the righteous. He's saying, Lord, protect those who are yours. Folks, that is what Christ does. If you've been made righteous by Christ, you don't need to worry about one day being swept away in judgment. It's amazing how many Christians are worried about the judgment of God. But if you belong to Christ, God will not sweep away the righteous with the wicked. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are what? In Christ Jesus. That's what Romans chapter eight and verse one. So the fact that we have an advocate who pleads our case should give us a great assurance. You don't have to fear the judgment of God if you belong to Christ. God is going to be just in his judgment in not sweeping away the righteous with the wicked. But but, but not only that, not only is he gonna be just in not sweeping away the righteous with the wicked, he's also going to be just in judging human wickedness. Sodom is completely evil and unjust. That's the whole point of this funneling down. There aren't even 10 righteous people. In other words, everyone is wicked. Everyone is evil. And and in fact, they are so evil that it would be unjust for God to allow that kind of evil to continue. If you see your neighbor being harmed, it is unjust not to intervene. If you see an injustice being perpetrated onto a neighbor, it is unjust not to stop that injustice. God is perfectly just in stopping injustice. And injustice is exactly what's happening in Sodom and Gomorrah. In fact, the word outcry in verse 20 there, outcry is immense. It's used three times in this whole section, twice in chapter 18, once in chapter 19. If you look in the prophets and in the Psalms, that word outcry is usually associated with the cries of oppressed people. So that's what's happening in Sodom and Gomorrah. There is human oppression. There's an outcry coming from these cities about human oppression. It it echoes Genesis chapter four when Cain kills his brother Abel and God says that the blood of Abel is crying out from the ground. This is a crime crying out for a punishment. There's a sense in these cities of unrestrained oppression, of social violence, of, of human brutality. There are no human rights here. And so I think this is here for us to realize that what's about to happen in chapter 19 is just. It's very easy, especially for us modern people, to look at a chapter like Genesis chapter 19 and say, what kind of, what kind of God would judge that that way? What kind of God could do that? We want to be judge over God. And I think chapter 18 is to show us God is just in his judgment. What he's about to do is perfectly right. And in fact, there's a theological statement in verse 25 that's key. Abraham says, won't the judge of all the earth do what is right or what is just? The answer is he will. 
he will. Whatever the Lord does is right. Boy, that's a tremendous statement for us to rest in. Because we oftentimes go through circumstances where we're like, that doesn't feel right. Well, that doesn't feel just. And we can rest in the fact that the judge of all the earth always does what is right. And that means even in judgment, he is right. The judge of all the earth always does what is right. So I think chapter 18, that section is to show us God is patient. He's not eager to judge. But when he judges, he is always right in doing so. He is always just. So let's see what happens. Well, in chapter 19, you have these angels and you see an investigation of this sinful city. They're going to look into the city and see if this is really so bad, if it's really as sinful as it sounds. Look at chapter 19, verse 1. It says, the two angels entered Sodom, right? The third angel is still with Abraham. Two, Two of the angels have come into the city of Sodom. In the evening, as Lot was sitting in Sodom's gateway, and when Lot saw them, he got up to meet them, and he bowed with his face to the ground and said, my lords, turn aside to your servant's house, wash your feet, and spend the night, and then you can get up early and go on your way. No, they said, we would rather spend the night in the square. But he urged them so strongly that they followed him and went into his house, and he prepared a feast and baked unleavened bread for them, and they ate. So these angels go into the city. Now, this is parallel to the beginning of chapter 18. Chapter 18, the angels come to Abraham and Sarah, and they come with an announcement of good news about a miraculous birth. Now, chapter 19, they come into the city of Sodom. Now they're, though, going to come with an announcement of bad news, and they're going to pronounce judgment and death. Back in chapter 18 and verses 20 and 21, you You heard what the verse says. God says, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is immense. I will go down to see if what they have done justifies the cry that has come up to me. God says, I have heard their outcry. I'm gonna go down to see if it's as bad as it sounds. God is going to look with his own two eyes, so to speak. When we learned back in Genesis chapter 16 in the story about Ishmael, that God hears and God Cease. Here, God hears the outcry of the oppressed, which ought to give us great comfort, that God always hears the cry of the oppressed. But now he's going to come and see with his own eyes if it's as really, really as bad as it sounds. He says, I will go down to see. Well, that's what's happening at the beginning of chapter 19. These angels are going to see with their own eyes what's really happened. I will go down. That's language that comes to us You'll remember from Genesis chapter 11 when they're building the Tower of Babel and God says, let's go down to see. Here God says, I I, I will go down. I will see. Let me just stop here to say this. I, I think sometimes we think our sin will slide under the radar, that no one will know about it, that God won't see it, that it'll go unseen like a stealth jet. This text shows us that God hears and God sees. God pays attention to our sin. There's nothing we can hide from him, right? We were told this in Genesis chapter six at the beginning of the flood story. It says, the Lord saw their wickedness. Don't think that you can hide your sin from God. What does he see? Well, he sees the city's perversion. Look beginning in verse four. It says, before they all went to bed, the, the men of the city of Sodom, both young and old, the whole population surrounded the house. And they called out to Lot and said, where are the men who came to you tonight? Send them out to us so that we can have sex with them. 
And Lot went out to them at the entrance and shut the door behind him. And he said, don't do this evil, my brothers. Here's the one time in Lot's life that he calls evil, evil. He says, this would be evil for me to take my guests and to give them to, to you, to this riotous mob surrounding the house. That would be evil. But we see that even Lot's sense of good and evil is perverted because look at what Lot does in verse eight. Maybe even more shocking than what's happened up to this point. Look, I've got two daughters who haven't been intimate with a man. I'll bring them out to you. And he says, literally, you can do what is right in your eyes to them. Remember, that's been a theme in Genesis, walking according to sight, doing what is right in your own eyes. This is a verse, uh, this is a phrase that was used of Hagar back in chapter 16, do what is right in your own eyes to her. Here, Lot says this about his own daughters. Do whatever you want to them. However, don't do anything to these men because they've come under the protection of my roof. Get out of the way, verse nine, they said, adding this one, speaking of Lot, came here as an alien, but now he's acting like a judge. Now we'll do more harm to you than to them. Whatever they had intended for these angels, they're intending now to do even worse than that to Lot. And they put pressure on Lot and they came up to break down the door. This is dark. One thing that the Bible is not, it is not dishonest about human sin. It it, it doesn't paper over or whitewash human sin. It, It tells it as it is. And this is dark. This is as ugly as it gets in your Bible. This shows the total depravity of the human heart. There, there is aggression here on behalf of this riotous mob that wants to come and, and harm these angels. There, there's an intent to abuse. Make no mistake, this is wrong. This is perverted. And in a day and a time when our culture is telling us that you can do anything you want with anyone that you want, it needs to be clearly stated that sexuality expressed beyond the covenant of marriage between one man and one woman is sin. This is a perversion of human sexuality. One of the words in Hebrew for sin means for something to be twisted. It means to take something that God intends for good and to distort it, to twist it. That's what's happening here. It's a perversion of human sexuality. It's a perversion of hospitality. It's a perversion of spirituality, men wanting to have sex with angelic beings. The last time this happened was Genesis chapter six, right before the flood. Listen, homosexuality is sin. Abuse is sin. Doing what Lot does with his daughters is sin. And this episode right here, verses four through nine, demonstrates the truth of chapter 18 and verse 25, that the judgment that is coming on this city is right. This episode is put here to illustrate how bad things had really gotten. There are any number of stories that Moses could have included here to show you how evil Sodom and Gomorrah was. This is the one that he includes to say, this is how bad it had gotten. This is how perverted the city was. This is how evil and how wicked things have gotten. This is the kind of thing that would have been happening all the time in Sodom. This is just an illustration of it. This is the kind of thing that was normal 
in these two cities. You, you might look at this and you might say, well, well, weren't there any innocent people in the city? No. That's the point of chapter 18, to say there aren't even 10. No one is righteous. No, not one. That's the language of Romans 3. There, no, no, no one is innocent, not even Lot. They all deserve judgment. Listen, any deviation from God's plan in any way is sinful. That means that you're a sinner and I'm a sinner. And regardless of whether your sin is homosexuality or abuse or negligence as a father or premarital or extramarital sex or pornography or greed or hatred or anger, it doesn't matter what kind of sinner that you and I happen to be, we are all sinners and we deserve the judgment of God for our sin. There's not one righteous. Let's be careful about just pointing fingers in this text. No, none of us are righteous. We all deserve the judgment of God for our sin. And that's, that's why we're told in verse four that everybody's involved in this. Verse four says, the men of the city, young and old, that means young, old, everybody in between, the whole population surrounded the house. The point is, all of Sodom's inhabitants are involved in this. This is a sinful city. I think maybe one of the most startling parts of this story, uh, this, this chapter is full of surprises. One of the most surprising and ugly things in this story is not only the sinfulness of the city, but the compromised heart and hypocritical actions of Lot. I mean, you, you expect the world to act like the world. You don't expect God's people to act like the world. Lot here has fully assimilated into the city of Sodom. Notice the trajectory of his life. Back in chapter 13, it tells us that Lot put his tent up near the city of Sodom. You turn the page, literally and figuratively, you turn the chapter to chapter 14, and Lot moves into the city of Sodom. Now in chapter 19 and verse 1, you find that he is sitting at the city gates of Sodom. And in the ancient world, to sit at the city gates of a city means that you are a prominent leader in the city. You, you were one of the judges. You, that's where the politicians and the leaders and the people of power would sit. That's where Lot now is. In other words, there is a progression of compromise in Lot's life. He has moved from being near the city to living in the city to now sitting at the city gates of Sodom. So, Psalm 1 warns us about walking in the advice of the wicked and standing in the pathway with sinners and sitting in the company of mockers. I think Lot's life here stands for us as a stark warning to avoid the slippery slope of compromise with the world. He's totally compromised. He, he, he's no longer shocked by what happens in Sodom. I think that's one of the reasons that he tells the angels not to, sit, not, not to go in the city square at night. Lot knows the kinds of things that happen at night in Sodom. And so he says, no, you need to come in my house, right? He's become accustomed to what happens in Sodom. No, no outcry from Lot, no, no outrage from Lot, no objection from Lot to what's happening in Sodom. He's moved right in. He's become right at home in the city. He, he's become comfortable with this. He, he's grown accustomed. He's used to this. He's acclimated. He's no longer shocked. He's become desensitized. He's become tolerating of this, affirming of this. He accepts this. He approves of this. He feels right at home in Sodom. And we need to be careful that we don't become too comfortable or compromised 
with this world, right? You remember the old casting crown song? It's a slow fade. Here we see a slow fade in the life of Lot. The city has a reputation that he's grown accustomed to and he's become comfortable with it. And what you find is that Sodom has rubbed off on him. Because while he steps out of the door and says, this is wrong, he then offers an alternate suggestion that is just as wrong. And so you see his sense of good and evil is skewed. He, in one instance, calls what is evil, evil, but in another instance, he calls what is evil, good. Now, does that sound like our culture in 2024? A confusion between what is right and what is wrong. That's Lot. He is a compromised heart. He doesn't know right from left, right from wrong, up from down. And he does the unthinkable in verse 8. No father should do this. A father ought to be willing to give his life for his daughters. Here we see an act of cowardice from Lot. One, one person says that he, he displays virtue as a host, right, because he's protecting the angels, but he displays shame as a father. Th th this is as ugly as it can get. It, it shows a total hypocrisy in Lot's life. He, he is acting out of his mind. This is fearful compromise. It, it is unthinking wickedness for Lot to do this. Someone has said that this is a monstrous breach of fatherly duty. Sodom has rubbed off on Lot, which means the, perver the perversion is all around. So someone has said that Sodom <clears throat> would have destroyed Lot had God not destroyed Sodom. And that's what you see, a slow fate. If it had been up to Lot's own wicked suggestion, it's likely his entire family would have been devoured by this riotous mob but for the grace of God. And in verse 10, we see that God mercifully steps in and rescues Lot from his own stupidity. We see God's protection beginning in verse 10. Let me just read the, the verses 10 through 14. It says, verse 10, <clears throat> but the angels reached out and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. You just picture angel arms reaching from inside the house to grab Lot by the collar and yank him in. And they, they struck the men who were at the entrance of the house, both young and old with blindness, so that they were unable to find the entrance. And then the angel said to Lot, do, do you have anyone else here, a son-in-law, your, your sons and daughters, or anyone else in the city who belongs to you? Get them out of this place, for we are about to destroy this place because the outcry, there it is again, against its people is so great before the Lord that the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and he spoke to his sons-in-law who were going to marry his daughters. Get up, he said, get out of this place for the Lord is about to destroy the city. Let's just stop right there. We see, we see God's protection in a couple of ways. First of all, now, I mean, this is sheer grace, right? Because truly, Lot deserves to be destroyed along with everyone else in Sodom. But God intervenes, even in the midst of Lot's stupid suggestion about his daughters, and these angels reach out to rescue them. This is God saying, nope. Lot's saying, okay, go ahead, you can take them. Do And God says, absolutely not. And he just, they, those angels reach and grab Lot by the collar and yank him in, strike the crowd with blindness, shut the door. That's, a, that's an act of grace. This is sometimes how God's grace works in our life. It just reaches out and grabs us and pulls us out of our own stupid decisions. I'm thankful for that. So here he protects Lot 
from immediate danger with the men of these city. And, and then there's a second protection here. He warns, they warn Lot about what's about to happen. We're gonna destroy this city, get out. Now you would expect at this particular juncture for Lot and his family to be extremely alarmed and respond immediately to the warning. But that's not what happens at all. Look, look at what happens beginning in uh, verse 14. What you find instead of alarm and obedience, you find hesitation. Look what happens. Abraham, uh, excuse me, Lot comes to his sons-in-law, says, get up, get out. The Lord is about to destroy the city, right? This is a gracious warning. But his sons-in-law thought he was joking. And this may tell us something about Lot's character as a man. Lot's an unserious man. Maybe he's the kind of guy who always makes jokes, unable to be taken seriously. The sons-in-law are not accustomed to him speaking about ultimate things. He's a fundamentally unserious man. And so when he finally does come and say, right, it's like the boy who cried wolf. When he finally does say something that's serious, they think he's joking. The sons-in-law laugh. Now, we've had laughter in the last couple of chapters. Chapter 17, Abraham laughs. Chapter 18, Sarah laughs. They, they both laugh in the face of God's provision. Now, these sons-in-law laugh in the face of destruction, not believing that God would ever really do this. When, when they hear about judgment, they think it's a joke. Now, that sounds like America in 2024. People who don't believe that God would ever judge sin, they think it's a joke. They laugh at the prospect. It's amazing. If you look at some of the pollsters out there, Gallup and Barna and others, how many people believe in heaven but don't believe in hell? They love the idea of a God who has heaven. They reject the idea of a God of, who has hell or judgment. Or at least they don't, they don't believe the loving God would ever judge sin, at least that they, God wouldn't judge me. So these sons-in-law ignore God's warning to flee judgment. Look at what happens next, beginning in verse 15. <clears throat> at daybreak, the angels urged Lot on, get up. This is the second time they've said that, third time. Get up, get up, get up. Take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away in the punishment of the city. <clears throat> Told you this chapter's full of surprises. Here's another one. But he hesitated. What? Hesitation. It's not just the sons-in-law who are hesitating. Lot himself is, has, this is hard to believe. To hesitate means to wait, to, to linger, to hang on. They, they've said three times, get up. Instead of getting up, he hesitates. This shows us how much of a compromised heart Lot had. When push came to shove, Lot was clinging to Sodom with all he had, unwilling even to flee the city of sin, Gotham, even as it was being judged. This shows us just how much not only Lot had become part of Sodom, but how much Sodom had become part of Lot. It wasn't just that Lot lived in Sodom. Sodom lived in Lot. You see that in verse six when he cries out to the men of the city and he says, my brothers. He calls them his kinsmen. Sodom has a total grip on him. 
It's interesting if you contrast chapter 18 and chapter 19. In the face of God's judgment, what was Adam's, uh, excuse me, Abraham's first response? <laughs> Prayer. In the face of judgment, Abraham's first response was to pray. In the face of God's judgment in chapter 19, Lot's not quick to pray, he's slow to leave. So the angels <clears throat> literally grab him and his family by the hands and drag them kicking and screaming outside the city. See that? Verses 16 and 17. Verse 16, but he hesitated. Now because of the Lord's sheer mercy, his compassion, his pity, <clears throat> Lot, Lot is not even willing to save himself at this point. So God has to step in and save him. Because of the Lord's compassion, the men grabbed his hand, his wife's hand, the hands of his two daughters. You got two angels, two hands each, that's four hands. You got Lot, his wife, there's two daughters. There's, there's a person in every hand. You just see angels, their hands full of Lot and his family just dragging them out of the city because they're so hesitant to leave. And they, they brought him out and left him outside the city. And as soon as the angels got them outside, one of them said, run for your lives. Don't look back and don't stop anywhere on the plain. Run to the mountains or you will be swept away. You remember Abraham's concern is that the righteous not be swept away with the wicked. Here, the angels say, you're about to be swept away with the wicked. Get out. How, how, does, how, does, how does Lot respond to that grace, right? Because this is grace. I mean, Lot here is clinging to Sodom. And if it wasn't for the angels dragging him by the hand, kicking and screaming to get him out of the city, he would have been swept away in the judgment. That's grace. The, the, the text says it's compassion, God's compassion for him. How does he respond to that? Well, he responds by hesitating, right? What, what he's saying when he's hesitating, he's saying, I don't want to leave. But then he says, I can't leave. Look in verses 18 and 19. But Lot said to them, no, my lords. That's a contradiction in terms. You can't say no and Lord and mean them both. He says, no, my lords. Please, your servant has indeed found favor with you and you've shown me great kindness by saving my life. Look at all the salvation terminology there. Favor, that's the Hebrew word for grace. Great kindness, that's hesed, God's covenant loyalty, his loving kindness. You have saved my life. That's all salvation terms. Abraham is saying, God, you've shown me your grace, but I can't run to the mountains. The disaster will overtake me and I will die. So he moves from saying, I don't want to leave to I can't leave. Alexander McLaren, the great Scottish pastor, says this about that verse. He says, the world first lies to us by saying, you are quite safe where you are. Don't be in a hurry to go. Then it lies, you never can get away now. That's how often how we relate to our sin, right? First of all, we say, I don't want to leave it behind. And then we say, I can't. It's got a grip on me. I can't leave this behind. <clears throat> Abraham acknowledges that he's a recipient of undeserved grace. But then he says, no, Lord. And he comes up with a bevy of excuses as to why he can't run to the mountains. He says, I can't. The disaster will overtake me. I will die. I can't. What he's saying here is that obedience is too difficult. I'm not able. He says, if I run to the mountains, disaster will overtake me. He's saying here, obedience is too dangerous. And then he says, I'll die. 
He's saying that obedience might lead to his death. So he would rather stay in the city of judgment. One final hesitation on Lot's part in verse 20. He offers another compromise. Look, he says to the angels, this town is close enough for me to flee to. It's a small place. Please let me run to it. It's only a small place, isn't it? So that I can survive. The angel grants his request. He says, all right, I'll grant your request about this matter too, and I will not demolish the town you mentioned. You know what that means? He would have demolished it otherwise. Hurry up, run to it, for I cannot do anything until you get there. Therefore, the name of the city is Zoar. He had seen Zoar back in chapter 13. Now he wants to run to Zoar. Zoar was one of the cities that would have been destroyed in this judgment. So catch what Lot is doing. He's saying, I'm going to flee from one place of sin and go to another place of sin. And look at how he justifies it. It's just a small place. See, twice he says it. It's, it's small. Just a small place. Boy, isn't that true with us? God, we, we're hanging on to Sodom for dear life and God's wanting to rescue us and we're saying, I don't want to go, I can't go. And then we finally say, okay, but let me just hang on to this small thing. And a little compromise still kills. He wants to go to Zoar. You know what Zoar means in Hebrew? Insignificant. Let me have this small place. Let me hold on to this small thing. And where he ends up is a place of insignificance. That's exactly what happens with us when we compromise. That's exactly what happens in Lot's life. He becomes insignificant in the story. This is a warning against compromising. You look at this and you say, well, why did Lot, why did Lot do this? <clears throat> why couldn't he let go of this? Why does he keep just even trying to clutch to a small little place? It's not that bad. It's so small. He wants to continue to live in compromise. It reminds me of, of Tolkien's description of Gollum in The Lord of the Rings and his relationship to the ring. Tolkien says this. It's actually in the voice of Gandalf. Speaking of Go Gollum, he says he was altogether wretched. He hated the dark, but he hated the light more. He hated everything and the ring most of all. What do you mean, said Frodo? Surely the ring was his precious and the only thing he cared for. But if he hated it, why didn't he get rid of it or go away and leave? And Gandalf said he hated it and loved it as he hated and loved himself. He could not get rid of it. He had no will left in the matter. That's exactly where Satan wants to get you. You might hate your sin, but there's this weird thing. We hate it and we love it just as we hate and love ourselves and we can't get rid of it. We lose all will in the matter. That's Lot's life. And it didn't just affect Lot. <clears throat> that Sodom mentality seeped into the life of his family as well. We're gonna see that next week. But let me just point out one thing here in verses 23 through 25. Verse 23, the sun, God begins to destroy, right? Here we see a picture of destruction. Sun had risen over the land when Lot reached Zoar, and then out of the sky, the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah. That interesting terminology, raining. It reminds us of the flood. 
Here he reigns on Sodom and Gomorrah, burning sulfur from the Lord. He demolished these cities, the entire plain, all the inhabitants of the cities, and whatever grew on the ground. There's a sense of the totality of God's judgment on human sinfulness here. I told you there are lots of surprises in this chapter. Here's one more, verse 26. But Lot's wife looked back and became a pillar of salt. Here we see not only does Lot have a compromised heart, so does Lot's wife. They're clutching to Sodom for dear life. Then they, they say, okay, well, we'll move to Zoar. We'll just keep this small place. Then judgment begins to happen and they begin to flee to the mountains. And, and the Hebrew structure of the sentence is very interesting. It's very intentional. It says, Lot's wife from behind him looked back. So the picture is, is as Lot's family is fleeing, his wife is at the back of the pack. She is hesitant to go. And then she looks back. Now that was expressly forbidden by the angels back up in verse 17. Don't look back, they say. And here we see the danger of a backward look. She becomes a pillar of salt. In the ancient world, salt was thrown onto areas that had become desolated or desecrated as a mark of their barrenness. Here she stands as a monument to the danger of looking back with longing towards the place from which God's grace has rescued us. Jesus warns in Luke 17, 32, remember Lot's wife. Don't ever look back with longing eyes or a longing heart to the life from which God by his grace has rescued you. This shows us just how serious compromise was. Sodom had gotten into her heart as well, and it had a total clutch around her heart. She wanted to go back. What should we do with this? What a story. I think, I think there's two reactions I think we're supposed to have to a story like this. I think, first of all, we are, this should cause in us a fear of the Lord. God's judgment is real. God takes sin extremely seriously. And sometimes our familiarity with God can hamper our fear of God. But the Proverbs tell us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So I think a story like this should cause alarm to realize that God judges all human sinfulness and all of us are sinners which means no matter if your, your sin looks like Sodom's sin or Lot's sin or something else, you and I deserve the judgment of God, which means I think the second reaction that we should have is it should cause us to have a desperation for God's grace. When we really think about the seriousness of God's judgment towards sin, it ought to cause in us a hunger for rescue. And, and folks, this is a dark chapter, but there, there are pictures of salvation in this chapter, and they're beautiful. You, you see these words pop up and these images pop up in the story, words like God's grace and God's loving kindness and God's salvation. These words are used in the text to show that, that God is in the business of rescuing sinful people so that they can escape the wrath of God. That's grace. And sometimes God's grace drags us kicking and screaming. When, when I see the angels grabbing Abraham, I mean, Lot and his family and pulling them by the hand, I see myself in that picture. 
wanting to clutch onto my sin, but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, gets me by the hand and rescues me from the pit that I love so much. That's grace. And we need that kind of rescuing grace. There's so many lessons in this text. God's judgment for sin is certain. Our only hope is God's grace. And it's God's grace through a righteous mediator. I think this is so beautiful to see in this story. Lot doesn't get rescued for Lot's sake. He gets rescued because of a righteous mediator who stepped forward in front of him, Abraham. Abraham steps forward and pleads the case of Lot. And in fact, it says in verse 29, so it was when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham and brought Lot out. Lot was rescued for the sake of Abraham. He remembered Abraham and he brought Lot out. Folks, isn't this a picture of what Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, would do? That God, in the midst of judgment, remembers the work of his son, Jesus Christ, and brings us out. Why does God spare Lot? It's because of a righteous mediator who begged God for mercy. And this points us to the work of Jesus Christ, who is the true and better Abraham. You see, Jesus does what Abraham could not do. Abraham could only beg God for mercy. Jesus bore the wrath of God so he can extend God's mercy. And one big difference between Abraham and Jesus is that Abraham begged God for mercy for the righteous. Jesus bears God's wrath for sinners. Romans 5.8 says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God's judgment is certain, but there is mercy at the cross. And there's mercy for any of you. It's, it's mercy for me, who deserves nothing but God's judgment, that Christ, as God's mediator, can extend God's grace to a sinner like me, who deserves to be swept away in judgment because he was swept away for me in my place. Amen? Let's bow together. Charity Bancroft has written a wonderful gospel song. She says, before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. Because the sinless savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God, the just, is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Folks, God's judgment is certain. There's only one hope of escape. Salvation by God's grace through God's mediator, Jesus. And if you don't know Jesus, I want you to know that rescue is available for you today. So don't hesitate. If you wanna talk about that, I'm gonna stay around after the service. I'll just be down here at the front. You come and talk with me about that. And if you, if you do know Jesus and you have experienced his rescuing grace, don't look back.